Welcome to the Jesus Said Love podcast. This is a space where we talk about what it means to awaken hope and empower change. Listen, for over a decade, Em and I have been fostering relationships with men and women who've been impacted by the commercial sex industry. And it's through those relationships that Jesus Said Love was born. We figured it was time to talk about what this ministry has taught us and is still teaching us along the way. I promise it's going to be a place of conversation and story. And we hope you learn something new. Maybe you see something in a new way. Fun fact, you're going to hear music because Brett and I are musicians. Yep. We can't just talk. Nope. we got to sing and play too. We do. Here's the deal, guys. Our hope is that as you hear these stories, that you'll tap into your own story and that you'll be encouraged to live and love well like Jesus. Hey, Em. Hey, Brett. How you doing? Well, I am here. I'm excited. I had to switch up my uh, wardrobe because we have on the show a fashion stylist. And I realized right before, like 15 minutes before, I was cleaning the storefront for a virtual sip and shop that we have tonight. I had done a hospice visit with one of our clients. And I came in and my sweatshirt was nasty. My hair was all like... And I was like, I can't look like this for Ashley Dunn. Like... I know she's not going to be judging me. Babe, this is a podcast. Nobody can see you except me and Ashley. I know, but I just had, I, it was about, you could wear a trash bag and look good girl. What does it matter? (laughs) It it was about me. So I busted into our Jesus said love donation closet and I found me a black blazer and a little white shirt and I will wash it and return it to that closet. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. I love it. (laughs) Okay. So, I'm really excited for our guest. You've already heard me mention Ashley Dunn. If you don't know Ashley Dunn, um, you need to go find her on Instagram and just go ahead and start following her. I'm Ashley Dunn. We'll say it again, two N's, D-U-N-N. But here's why I'm excited. First of all, she's a Texas girl. So she she understands uh, Texas, but she's now in LA. She's a journalist. She's a fashion stylist. She interviews some of our current favorite celebrities like Sterling K. Brown from This Is Us, she has been working it and she is fashionable and she's also a beautiful black woman of faith who is going to come to us today and tell our audience what 2020 has been like, how she has kept hope and resiliency and faith in the midst of so much turmoil. Um, welcome to our show, Ashley. Yay. I'm so excited to be here. I love it. Hey, thank you guys so much for having me. I love the partnership between you two. So I'm super inspired and just happy to be here. So thank you guys for having me. Um, we did say before we started and we were laughing because you're the journalist and you're the interviewer and we're switching it up. You're in the hot seat. I'm in the hot seat. So I'm a little like, ah, I'm a little frazzled. But I'm okay, the- be, hold on, hold on. Be honest. Are you really nervous? I am because you guys, I this is different. This is completely different for me. So I'm completely nervous. I love <laughs> but I'm it. So you guys will take care of me. I know. Yeah, you're the you're gonna you're gonna do great because it and it is hard when we're like flipping the script when you're out of your comfort zone a little bit. But that's kind of why I wanted to have you on because I feel like 
throughout the years, you've been able to see so many different facets of people's lives and you've been kind of a collector of stories. And I think as we do that, um, Brett and I are communications majors. And so it's been kind of a gift to have that skill set. And then as we learn other people's stories, it helps define our own, Right. you know? It's uh-huh. like when we're gathering all these pieces of culture and the world and how things work, it's like illuminates different aspects of our lives. Right. And so I just think you probably have a lot of wisdom that that hasn't been out there because you haven't been in the hot seat. You've been on the other end of the microphone. Oh, that's that's right. I've been holding it in. I've been, you know, it's so funny because I talked to my husband about this recently about you know, we, I feel like we have a story, like our journey, you know, we've been married eight years, almost nine years coming up in May um, next year. But I feel like just our journey alone has really, you know, grown my faith. You know, I mean, when we met in, um, I think it was 2010, we kind of began on this faith journey together. Like I was already like, you know, in the word of God and following God and, you know, a woman of Christ. But I felt like when we came together, we, you know, just sort of merged and began this faith walk, if you will. As marriage is. It is. And I was talking to him about, like, wow, we just have so much to share. I was like, you're going to be on the podcast. He's, he's going to be on my podcast. So I told him, so get ready. <laughs> I need to interview you. We need to talk about this and get this stuff out. <laughs> For sure. I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, tell it, take us a little bit into your story. I mean, Okay, tell I told our audience about who you are, but but who is Ashley Dunn? What do you feel called to? Um, what's the space that you kind of take up in the world? Yeah, I feel. I'll start with that, what I feel called to. I feel called to tell stories, you know. Um, and with that, this is such a good opportunity. I feel called to tell my own story, you know. I feel like I've not really shared my journey or my truth. And, you know, Ashley Dunn is 37 years old. I grew up in Texas and Dallas. I'm a Dallas girl, not a Dallas Cowboys fan. I know people are going to be like, wait a minute. <laughs> not okay. a okay. I'm a Saints fan. My husband's from New Orleans, so I'm a Saints fan. Mm. But um, I grew up in Texas and Dallas, um, the youngest of three girls. My dad was an attorney. My mom, she worked um, for AT&T, Southwestern Bell. It was um, when I was growing up and then it changed to AT&T. But I was a young girl just trying to find my way. You know, my mom had me a little bit older, so she was older and my older sisters were kind of out of the house when I was coming up. So, you know, it was just me trying to navigate the space of like, What's my voice? Where do I belong? Where do I fit in this? You know, and I don't think it was until college that I began to, you know, separate myself from not necessarily what how I grew up, but like defining who I was as Ashley Davis at that time, you know, who I was and who I wanted to be. Um, And so, you know, because I felt like I was in the shadows of my sisters a lot. You know, I felt like I had to do whatever they were doing. And if I wasn't doing what they were doing, then I wasn't going to be successful. So I had to deal with a little bit of that. My dad was an alcoholic. So I dealt with that. He died when I was in school. I dealt with that. So there was a lot of trauma that I dealt with as a child that I felt like I had an eating disorder. 
<laughs> you know, yeah. from the time that I was Same. in the first grade up until oh, when so I met my husband in 2010, I had an eating disorder. So I had a lot of trauma that I carried, right? You yes. know, I yes. carried and then with that, I was always this, you know, personality in public where I was the one where, you know, I would make people feel good. I was the one where people could come to it for advice. But, you know, behind closed doors, I may be crumbling and trying to figure out, okay, but what do I do? Where do I turn to or who do I turn to? So I felt like, you know, Ashley Davis growing up, because that's my maiden name is Davis. Mm -hmm. Growing up, she was just a girl just trying to find her way, find her place. Mm -hmm. And like I said, when I was in college, I felt like that was my journey, my turning point, if you will. Of Did you, let me ask you, where did you go to college? Did you leave home? Did you? I, did. I went okay. to Purdue, which is still in Texas, but I went to Purdue A&M um, 2001. Um, and I pledged a sorority in 2002. And I felt like when I pledged that sorority, it, it made me... It gave me the sisterhood that I didn't necessarily have growing up. Now, I'm really close to my sisters, but it gave me a different sisterhood, if you will. Um, And it just made me grow up. I pledged at 19. And so I was fairly young. I think I was one of the youngest on our line. And again, like I said, college was that turning point for me where I started, Mm -hmm. you know, shift and began to, you know, say, this is what I want to do with my life. This is what I want to do with my career and so forth. Mm-hmm. When you um, go to college, you know, it's interesting, especially when you leave home for the first time, or even if it's not college, you just, you move away. It's kind of that coming of age. It's kind of like, it's that time of your life where you have to confront your past. It, it just, it comes up. I mean, there's no way around it. And I really feel like those college years are such more than anything to me, no, no matter where you go um, or what, you know, your college experience is like, whether it's a junior college or, or whatever, it really does feel like such a formative time that God can use. Um, did your faith have an impact in those formative years? Um, did Was your experience of God different uh, there in college than it was when you were growing up? It was different, but it didn't really shape until like, in, like I said, around like the 2010, around that area, because I remember, so just a little backstory. I grew up in church. My grandparents big on church. So my, I grew up, you know, that was what we did every Sunday, church, 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 but you don't really understand what faith is or what that means until you're having to depend on God for yourself. Like you can, you can't use what grandma and mama taught you when you're in a position where your back is against the wall and all you can do is go to God. And so that didn't really happen for me until I was, it was after 25, I was well out, out of college and, you know, a full on adult and having to just Mm. say, I surrender I don't know what I'm going to do, God, but I'm trusting in you to help me navigate this situation. Um, that's when my faith began to began to build, you know, and, and it got stronger over time. 
And at that point, was your um, were you confronting and surrendering or trying to um, really wrestling and grappling with the your womanhood with your with your body? I mean, you shared, you know, just I I know that that journey and that struggle well. I it was my sophomore year of college when I gave up diet pills and an eating disorder, and um, there is a lot to be surrendered. But there's also a lot that we don't understand when we're young, the pressure on us in culture as women, mm-hmm. and especially you as a black woman. Yep. What do you what what do you feel like? How did culture impact you as a woman, as a black woman who is now battling an eating disorder? First of all, I felt it was a secret. Like it was kept very secret. My mom knew, um, you know, my sisters knew, but it was very secret. It wasn't something that, you know, and then I think it was secret because no one really in my culture, you really don't hear about black women having an eating disorder. That's just not. Why not? Why not? Let's talk about that. I don't really know. And I think that that's something that should be addressed. You know, I don't yeah. know so taboo in the black community because I mean it's something that I know I'm not the only one that dealt with it I know there are tons of other black women that dealt with it in privacy and probably in silence because they didn't feel a place a safe space to go to to say hey this is what I'm battling with because it's almost like what we have all of this other stuff going on we don't have time for what do you mean? You're eating, growing up, your food, what? Yeah. Food down. Not understanding that it was psychological to the right. point of, and that also goes back to, I'll never forget being in the first grade, after lunch, going to the bathroom and putting my finger down my throat. Don't How know did you learn that. it that early? That's the point. I, I look back on that and to this day, I never, I will never forget being excused, going to the restroom and doing that in the first grade, not even had not ever seen anybody in my family do it. But that was something that I felt I needed to get food out of my stomach. And you know why? It was because I was teased mm. in elementary school for my weight. You know, I was teased mm. for my color and I'm teased for my color by my peers. So that's a whole other thing. It's like, Oreo, I was called because I was proper and, you know, dark skin. So all of these complexities you're dealing with as a child, again, carried over to adulthood. Yeah. Not really having the outlet to express what's really happening. Why are you even doing this? It's, it's, it's trauma and it has to be worked out. And it, it does get worked out at some point. I mean, you know, you can't escape it. You have to at some point confront the wall and break the barriers down. And that's what mm-hmm. I had. Wow. Brett, I think that's, have- yeah. I th- um, uh, that you, you were ridiculed from people of your own color. I, I think that's an interesting thing that we don't talk about when we talk about race relations and things like that. It's like, not only are you dealing with uh, the white supremacy of, super out there kind of thing there's also the the quiet within the, the same race mm-hmm. issue that's going on i mean talk about that like what this may be a stupid question which which is harder to navigate mm-hmm. as a woman of color 
I don't think any of it is. I mean, you know, it's not easy on either side. It's more hurtful coming from your peers because you expect yeah. them to, you know, your mom is probably my color. Your sister is probably my color. Why are you making fun of me and my color? And so, yeah, I mean, it's not easy. And I think that it's something that we have to address within our culture. And I think um, colorism is a big issue because, you know, if you weren't, especially back in the 80s, if you weren't, you know, of a lighter complexion and you were more my color, you were teased or you were called names. Um, and I grew up in a household with two sisters who are very fair, very light, lighter skin than me. So I was even asked if my, if I was adopted once. Wow. So I hurtful things, you know, as kids. So that's why I really, you know, feel for the children now because they have this added component of social media. We didn't have that in the 80s. Oh. You know, and in the 90s, we didn't have social media. So now people can really, really be cruel. But I think that, Brett, to your question, it's not it's not easy from either side. Both are wrong. And I feel like it needs to be addressed in a way where people can really get their feelings out and be heard without being, oh, you're too sensitive or, oh, it wasn't like that or I didn't mean it like that. All feelings are valid, right? Yes, absolutely. Did you start learning about um, trauma and mental health? When did you make the connection that this kind of disordered eating um, was a psychological problem? When did you make that connection and give yourself permission to see it as a mental health issue instead of um, just, you know, something random that, that you were just doing? When did you actually give it the weight that it deserved? When I got older and after I was done, you know, because like I've had time to look back on that and it definitely was a mental health thing because it was something in my mind telling me that I needed to get that food out of my body ASAP. And if I didn't, uh, what's going on? You have to get this out. I mean, I had a, like the popcorn tin, remember the Christmas popcorn tin, popcorn tin on the side of my bed in high school to throw up my food in my room, like just so I didn't have to go to the restroom. And then I would just dump it. I mean, yeah. who, you, you get what I mean? And so it was, a, it was a lot. And now that I'm able to finally, you know, talk about this and really share this, it, it really like makes me, and I don't want to cry. I'm not going to mm-hmm. cry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know it's so hard and you're so brave. You're so brave. It is very I'm sorry Mm-mm. we're we're ta- we're taking all the time, just deep breaths. we get it. We do this all day long. I'm sorry, but I think that looking back on it and looking at myself as the little girl who felt the need to do that. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. That's the hurtful part. You know, and then to see how it transitioned until, you know, college or well, high school, college, and then into my adulthood. Mm-hmm. It, it's definitely a mental health thing because it's something in your mind telling you that you're not good enough. That you're not enough unless this food is out of your body. You're not enough unless you wait or look like this. And I think that it's important, especially now 
again, with social media that we teach our kids and our youth and people, period, that we are enough. You are enough. You look fine. Like, I can tell you, like, I put on a little, a few pounds during quarantine and I do not care at what, you know, I'm like, so what? You know, I put on a few pounds, but it got to me going through all of those years of that trauma mm-hmm. and then coming to that wall where I said, okay, I can no longer carry on like this. And you know what, Emily, it's so funny, not even funny, but my decision to stop doing that to myself was for God. I yeah. said, this is not a God. This is not me honoring God doing this. Me to too. You know, me he too. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I, uh, listening to you talk, I, um, so we're kind of going through this season right now with our son where he'll, he loves, he loves to be funny. Um, and he gets caught up in the moment. He's 10. He gets caught up. He's very competitive mm-hmm. and, um, he'll just say some of the stupidest things. Some, and sometimes it's mean and he, he doesn't mean to be mean, mm-hmm. uh, but if he if he realizes, ooh, that was probably too much, then he'll he'll automatically go. I was just kidding. I was just kidding. Right. And for him, I think that's his that's his default of I just acknowledge what I said was probably not right, and mm-hmm. so I want to roll out of that. And I think I think it, to your point about social media, I think if kids knew because they're so brave behind the screen, and they're so brave on the Instagram comment, and they say the biggest load of shit <laughs> that. Is so, they don't understand how harmful it. Like you're a 37 year old adult, mm-hmm. you're still feeling what was said to you back when you were seven, eight, nine, ten. I still feel the things that I felt when I was, right. you know, something triggers that. Yeah, I mean, just the other day, I dropped my son off at basketball, and I had forgotten something. and And he gets out and and he says to the rest of his team and the coaches, and he didn't know I was. I heard it because I drove off to go get what I forgot. But as I was driving off, I heard him go, "My dad is such a dummy," and he was just kidding. But it was like it took me back to being a little kid because it was said in front of all these people, and I'm like, "Boy, I know dummy, please." I'm gonna show you dummy next. I'm gonna show you dummy next time when you get real embarrassed in this place. But I mean, I think if I, and I don't know how we show them except for these kinds of yeah. venues. If we can get our kids to listen to people's story, right? Uh, just about hey, it's not about being cool behind a screen. Wow. It's about I mean, the, we all know the Bible says there's power and death in the, the tongue. The tongue, right? I mean, are we speaking life or are we speaking death? Hello, somebody. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get preachy, but let's part of your courage in your bravery in the space that you take up as um, a stylist, as a journalist. I mean, part of why I started following you was because you were so bold with your fashion. And I think it was so endearing to me as a woman, you know, we're, we're not the same height, but I've got curves and I'm always looking at full figured women who embody confidence and who um, my, part of my journey as a white woman is that to be white and beautiful meant to be skinny. Mm-hmm. And I was an athlete and many of my f- athlete, you know, teammates and classmates were women of color and they had curves and they embraced them. Mm-hmm. And I just remember feeling 
like, man, why can't, why can't my friends like embrace, you know, more curves? Anyway, I think that's what part of what drew me to you was that you have this, um, confidence about your style Mm -hmm. and what you're doing with fashion Mm -hmm. that really isn't, it's not about looking perfect. It's about owning just, just your own beauty. And I don't know any other way to say it, but you know, to me, it's so interesting that you're taking up that space and yet you're a woman who struggled through disordered eating. It's baffling to me too. But Emily, you never know what the journey will be, right? So I couldn't, I, look, but the thing about it is through all of that, I was always, like I said, like bubbly. I was voted misspirited in high school. So I was always, you know, I've always loved myself and been confident, but there was that, again, something right here that would, Turn mm-hmm. on and say, wait a minute, too much confidence, too much you know, believing in yourself. Bring it back down. You need to get this out. You need to, I mean, you know, so there was always some little tiny little voice in the back of my head. And I'll say this also to the point that you made about, you know, white women and, you know, loving your body. Like I grew up, you know, looking on TV and that's what the idea of beauty looked like, a blonde exactly. hair. Oh, totally. you know, uh, imagine a little chocolate girl that was curvy. Yeah. I was curvy my whole life. <laughs> At seven years old, I was curvy. And 4'11, I've been the same height I feel like forever. But anyway, imagine me looking on TV. I did not see myself represented. You know, I no, mean, you Claire Huxtable, but again, she didn't represent me in terms of, you know, yes. what I had going on. You know what I mean? So I think that, you know, we're moving into a different space in terms of rep- in terms of representation, being on TV, being in the media. So now I feel like we have more to look at and say, okay, hey, I can be her or I can be like this or I can be like that one. We have a variety, you know, but mm. I, I, I wouldn't have thought I would be this person. It was How like- did you... Yeah, how did you get into it? Like, who who said, how did you know, like, I want to be a stylist? Well, so, okay. For me, it was always going to be entertainment or fashion. Like, growing up, I was always into it, right? I was always, like, stuck on what's going on in, you know, with Nicole Richie, Paris Hilton, what's mm-hmm. going on in the news. I, I was always into entertainment tonight, always into that you know, world. world. And so in college, I, you know, began to map out, like I told you, like, okay, what do I want to do? What areas am I, you know, thriving in or most creative in? And so fashion was one of them, you know, that's where people began to like ask me for styling tips. And I was like, what? Styling tips? What's that? You know? And so I would help people like with their outfits, but that wasn't, you know, you, there wasn't a name for it. At that time, okay. if you will, especially not in my culture, it was it was just you know an outfit. Help me pick out an outfit, and um, that's where I believe it began to cultivate into you know pursuing it as a career. And then from college, I started you know doing it freelance. After college, I would do like my boss's closet. 
I would, you know, to just do whatever I could do to get the experience. Right. And I started my own styling company. Um, my first company was Kay's Boulevard of Style. My middle name is Kay. And I was passing out cards and telling people, you know, hey, if you need a stylist, let me know. <laughs> Again, this is like 2006. So nobody's I like, love it. you know, checking for it. But I believed in it, you know, and so I just kept at it and kept at it, you know, regardless of how it looked to other people, because a lot of times people would say, um, that's just a pipe dream. I don't know about mm. that. I don't know if that's what you should be doing. You should just get a corporate job and be settled and do that. And that never was my, my lane, right? That was yeah. never my thing. And so that's where it, you know, cultivated in college, the fashion thing. So, wow. Yeah. And then, and, and then you, were you a communications major, a journalism major, and, and you just went into that lane kind of right after school, you started working for a news station or how'd that happen? So I interned um, in high school at a local paper in Dallas. And then when I got to college, I majored in communication. So I worked at the newspaper there. Um, and so when I got out of college, I was, uh, well, right before I was applying for all of these jobs here in LA, like I was applying for the O Magazine, Teen Vogue. I was just applying for all of these, you know, fashion jobs in which I could mix fashion and journalism together. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> they were like, if you don't have any experience, I wouldn't get no calls back. I was, everybody was like, no, 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 and no. <laughs> so wow. I felt like I had to put that on pause, the, the, the journalism side of it and focus on what I could focus on, which was I can style people. I can do people's closets. I can, you know, with the emergence of social media, I can be a content creator in the sense of you know posting and putting my work out on social media. And then the opportunity came in the end of 2012 in which I was able to merge them. I was asked to do a segment, a fashion segment um, on channel two there. And it, maybe that's where I heard of you. I, yeah, I heard it. it was for channel two. And I did a fashion segment for new year's Eve for what to wear for new year. Yes. Spawn me becoming an on-air correspondent for, I did Fox for a year. Um, and then after Fox, I began to do uh, Great Day Houston. And then I did another show that came about a few years later called Houston Life. So okay. that's where I began to merge the two. And then it was a point where I felt like, okay, fashion, yay. But I don't just want to talk about what people are wearing, you know, yeah. like I, said, I want to, I feel called to tell stories and, you know, if those stories are Sterling K Brown or, you know, Emily mm -hmm. Blunt, whoever they are, I'm yeah. called to tell people's stories. And I feel like that's where the transition began to happen. Like I started to map out my plan of, okay, I need to get to LA because that's where the entertainment hub is. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be in TV and, you know, be an entertainment journalist and do it and, you know, not straddle the fence with fashion and entertainment. I need to be making my move. Now, that's not to say that I'm not still doing fashion. I am still very much a fashion girl. Yeah, but, you are. You know, I'm, I feel like I can do both. I can speak mm -hmm. to fashion and I can speak to entertainment. Totally. You know, Ashley, I'm sitting here as, as you're talking and realizing you and I have a lot in common. <laughs> what? 
So I'm a six three white man. You're a four eleven black woman. Wait, just wait for it. Okay. I was best dressed in high school. What? I was best dressed in high school. I don't know how. And to this day, I have a fashion. And if if you asked anyone on the streets of anywhere, mm-hmm. what would Brett Mills be wearing? They're going to tell you black. It's He's true. Black. That's all he wears. And so I just feel a real kindred spirit to you right now. We're talking fashion. We're talking telling people stories. Yeah. Let's go, girl. Yeah. We're, look, we're a brother and sister, Britt. We're brothers. <laughs> I, I kind of was feeling the opposite. I was like, maybe she can come down. And like, when she comes back to Texas, help the wardrobe situation. Yeah. Brett did Brett did start wearing white occasionally, and it was like a breath of fresh air. It Only was on the weekends so at the beach. Great, I loved the switch up. Um, so now that you're in LA, I love that you made that move for yourself. Yes, because that is something that I think a lot of times we're just scared to do when we're chasing our goals. Do oh, you no. have? How did you decide to do that? Like, do you believe in? writing out your vision? Oh, yeah. Okay. So do you do that on the daily? Do you do that weekly? Do you take a monthly? How do you write out your vision? I write daily. (laughs) You know, um, I write because I have to keep up with my thoughts because if I don't put it down, I will forget. So I've made sure that if it comes in my mind that I need to write it down. And so I make sure to write down every day like you know my plans or you know if I'm asking God for something or if I'm believing God for something I write it down but in terms of the move to LA it was something that my husband and I had talked about for years you know at first we considered New York but we would go to fashion week you know and it was just like okay I don't think this is the place for us, you know, so we had to pick between LA and New York. And so we had been to LA a few times, you know, for work opportunities. And so we, you know, said, okay. And again, going back to college, this is where I wanted to be anyway. Right. And so, you know, we had decided, okay, LA will be our move. So again, that was what we said, but that didn't happen like right away. You know what I mean? It took time. Um, And it was a moment in, the end of 2017 in which the beginning of 2018 where God spoke to us and God allowed some things to open and shift and move. And God spoke literally to us and said that it's time. Mm-hmm. And we moved May 16th of 2018. And mm-hmm. we have that. And let me be clear. I'm not saying that, Making a move across state to, you know, is an easy thing or that, you know, we hadn't run into, you know, some like, oh, my God, what's going on? But let me tell you this. We have not wanted or gone without anything since we've been here. My husband got his job like six months after we got here, I believe. We moved here in May. He got his job in October and picked up and we just began to move. We began to move in what God told us to do. And I think that's so important is to, because a lot of times we get so stuck in fear, right? Or we get stuck in what our family said or our friends said, or what's the conventional thing to do. And we don't move and, you know, go with what God has called us to do. And I really feel that it's so important for people to listen to the voice in your head, listen to go to God in prayer, 
first of all, right? Go to God in prayer. He will speak back to you so clearly that you won't have any doubts in your mind. You know, mm. that's we're here off of faith, like pure mm. faith. We're here on faith. That's great. Yeah, it, I mean, that is that is a word that could not be more timely and more relevant, I mean, for me, and I'm sure for some of our listeners, because I think a lot of us have asked the question, you know, what am I doing during this shutdown, during this pandemic? We've really been forced to ask some really deep questions, you know, what, what am I doing? Do I enjoy the work that I'm in? Do I have a job? I mean, maybe you've lost your job, you know, and you're having to find where God wants you next. And I think what you're saying is that God speaks, God will speak and he is not leaving you alone. And, and fear becomes the barrier to a life fully lived. It it really is. It's just, that's such a timely word. Speaking of 2020, I think one of the things that has become um, also very apparent are the voices that, not just God's voice, but um, who God is speaking through right now. And whether, and and God is speaking through, and has always been speaking through people, um, but particularly there's a voice that we have not historically listened to and we have not historically brought to center, and that's the voice of black women. And what in 2020 do you feel like we need to be hearing more than ever, especially as if if you're white, if you are majority culture? Um, what do we need to be hearing from the margins? In a, yeah, from your perspective, from your vantage point. I think that that's so important. I feel like 2020 opened the door for people to take a uncomfortable look at what black people have been saying, what black people have been saying for years. Right. I think white people and other races were confronted and were very uncomfortable with what they saw with George Floyd. Right. That was something that they were like, wait a minute. Now, I know that we didn't just see this and, you know, so forth and so on. We've been seeing this type of injustice for years and years. In terms of Black women, I feel like the Black voice, period, that white people have to come to the place where just because it was okay and comfortable for them and their way of life and how they grew up and, oh, well, we didn't have this problem or I didn't know that or I didn't see that. All of that is out the window, right? It's time for white people to began to take a look with different eyes, right? Mm-hmm. It's time for white people to sit back and not sit back and not do anything, but sit back and pay attention, right? Mm-hmm. Observe, write down notes, watch documentaries, educate yes. themselves on yes. the history and the culture of trauma within black people. Like I yes. just, you a word of trauma just within our own culture that's something you know colorism you know look into research and and understand why black people operate in the way that they do when they say black women are aggressive why is that why are black women deemed aggressive if they speak Mm -hmm. up we're aggressive it's that our voice has been stifled for so long that we want to make sure that we are seen and heard 
You know, we were told for so long that, no, you're not welcome here. You're not welcome at this seat. Now every company is wanting to have a black woman on their board. So I think that white people need to, they need to do the work. They need to listen, ask questions, but don't expect black people to be the educator, if you will. You know, don't, don't feel like black people owe it to, you know, you to educate you. Now, I feel like we can be open in our communication with white people. If you do ask me a question, I don't mind sharing, but everybody is not going to want to break down the history of black people. That'll be up for you to go and do your own research um, and pay attention. And I just want to say that is so important, Ashley, because I've even made the mistake of, you know, calling my black friends, texting them and saying, well, does this, is this something that I should say or shouldn't say and asking them? And that's just tiresome. It's that's not for them to do. It's like, if I have a question about it, then don't and wait till you figure out what you need to say. And, and then when there's pushback, you know, maybe you said something wrong. Don't get offended. No, I mean, because look, we've been offended and had to keep going for a long time. <laughs> I mean, right? <laughs> like, we've been offended yes. times. I mean, Michelle Obama called a month. Yes. I mean, yes. we've been offended on so many levels, but that hasn't yeah. stopped us. So don't be offended. Just understand that we are at a place now where it's a, we're not going back to how it was. That's so right. 2020 was a pivotal year, right? That yeah. you know, we have the pandemic, you know, Things have come out that now we're addressing and now we're facing as a culture, as a people, you know, yeah. and so we, we're not going back to how it was before. We're only going to go forward. And I think that the black woman's voice and the black voice period has stopped and it's a lot to be learned. I'm learning. Look, yeah. I'm not saying that white people have to learn on their own. We're all collectively having to relearn. A lot of stuff that we were taught that was incorrect, right? Mm, that's so good. That's so good, and and I think I, I I hear the word active in what you're saying. That the one of the words to white people is is stop being passive. It's time to be active. Like you have to actively learn instead of sitting back going, well, I don't know why they're just so. Why are they robbing those stores? Why are they burning that stuff down? Right. Educate. You know, it's like, fit, we'll figure out why. Mm-hmm. And don't just sit there and say stupid things like, well, they need to get a job. Right. Like, that's the laziest response I have ever heard. And I hear it all the time. And I'm like, read a book. Right. Watch a documentary. Sit down and buy someone some coffee and have a, a conversation. Support like, a black business. Support yeah. a black business, for sure. Yeah, this is, it's exposing so much of what has been just historically there the whole time. You know, it's not like, go go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah. It's not like this is anything new, just like what you were saying. It's just, we've ripped the bandaid off. Oh, the bandaid's been ripped. And I was going (laughs) to say, I was recently watching um, the Reagan documentary. So good on, um, I think it's Showtime. And that was a lesson in itself. So if you okay. haven't watched the Reagan documentary, go watch yeah. that. Go watch that in, in on Showtime and educate yourself. That, that'll help you also to begin to understand there's this thing that they call states' rights. 
So, you know, they were fighting for civil rights, Martin Luther King and so forth and so on. But they had a, a, a bill called states' rights. States' rights prevented black people from buying a home from a white person. Like a mm. white person, it's illegal for a white person to sell their home to a black person. How crazy is that, right? And then states' rights also says, and Reagan campaigned on Make America Great Again. I know, I know. You know what I mean? So watching that documentary, it's four parts, four hours, but it was very, very enlightening. And I think people should watch it because, I mean, again, like I said, it's not just about white people, you know, researching what black people and our culture, but us collectively educating ourselves on the history of this country. Because yeah. if you go back and look at the, history, at the history of this country and who built this country, We'll begin to, you know, when they say get a job or, you know, welfare queen, as they mentioned in the Reagan documentary, as it refers to black women, it's Mm. a lot to be learned and a lot of relearning that we have to do to move forward. Well, you know, it's going to be interesting about that. Folks are going to go, I don't remember that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you you don't remember that because it didn't affect you. Right. And that's the thing, Brett. White people have to understand, and that's why I said with new eyes, because what didn't affect them doesn't make it right for the next person to go through it. So because George Floyd is not happening in in your community, it doesn't make it right for it to happen, you know, in another community. So it's not about us collectively coming together, which I saw, you know, in the streets. Black, whites, Asians, everybody mm. coming together fighting for this justice that we mm. all deserve. You know, when we say Black Lives Matter, yeah. it's not saying Black lives are better than anybody. We're saying we also matter. We matter yeah. in, you know, climate. We matter in the justice system. We matter. We have a place. And I think that, you know, as we continue to move into 2021 and you know, you continue to hear the black voice and the black woman's voice. It's important to hear that and be an ally and walk with us. You know, what is that? What does that mean to you to be an ally? Because that's been a big word. And I think there's a lot of people who want to be an ally who, you know, I would consider myself an ally, but I know I'm not going to get it right every time. Um, But what does it mean to you to be an ally to our black brothers and sisters? And first I'll just say being an ally you don't have to get it right every time, right? We're human. So being an ally means standing with us, speaking to your community, speaking to your friends when they're out of pocket and they say something wrong and you know it and you catch them and say, wait, that wasn't right. So that they don't go out and say that or not even just telling them that it wasn't right, but educating them on why it wasn't right and why it's not acceptable acceptable to do it in your presence, right? Mm-hmm. That's a part of being an ally, walking with us, speaking on our behalves, inviting us into rooms where we probably wouldn't have access to so that there's another voice that's there that, you know, somebody wouldn't have heard if the ally didn't bring them in. So I think the ally for me means partnership. It means friendship. It means walking alongside And I just want to be really clear, too, for those of us who are white and maybe who are middle class and have disposable income, it is absolutely allyship is an economical allyship that we invest in the black community, that we invest in black businesses, that we put our money where our mouth is. And allyship is not um, what they call optical allyship. It's not about posting an Instagram post and then... Just 
going no. right about on your merry way, like like this isn't wrecking, you know, injustices aren't wrecking communities because they are. So it really is about finding the ways, you know, I think one of the downfalls of, of Instagram and the social media culture is that so much of what we do is for optics. So much of what we do is to picture perfect our lives. And so if social justice is relevant and standing against human trafficking is the new social justice thing, then everybody wants to post about it. But I'm like, what are you doing with your money? Are you still buying products that were made by 15-year-olds somewhere? Or, you know, I mean, or exploiting women or exploiting, you know, how are we investing our dollar? Because your dollar is what makes a difference and moves the needle forward in justice for marginalized people. There's no other way around that. And like Brexit, action. Yeah. Period. Action. It's yeah. means action. Putting like your money where your mouth is, putting your actions to work, putting your actions yeah. to play. Right? Yeah. That's yes. That's so true. You know, well, and I, oh, I was just going to say, I, I just think for my white friends out there, we you've got to stop um, not wanting to learn about these issues. And we've got to stop. Um, with all the things we thought were the way that it was, it's like let's just clear the slate. <laughs> let's let let's just all start over and and sit down and listen and learn and and not try to. It's like we've done such a good. I just I keep hearing so many phrases going through my head of things I've heard in the past couple of weeks. I'm just like, can we just stop assuming things about people because of the color of their skin? Or whatever they do for we just assume so much about people, and we're just so damn wrong mm. most of the time. I mean, and the thing about it is, I feel like we're more alike than we are different, but we're so yeah. divided that we can't even come together to even, you know, like you said, Brett, we're like twins. You know, we have we are. You know, so one of my one of my one of my best friends is Odell James, and he's from Third Ward in Houston. And right. he is like, he just says, "Brett, you're black, and I'm white, and we're together, and I make better Kool Aid than you, black, but still, we're in this together, that. and we're on the same. I mean, he's my brother, like, but he is your brother, and I feel he like is. we're we've been taught so many wrong things, and it goes back to like. You know, years before we even, generations ago, you know, and I feel like we're in a position now and we're in a time now where we have to relearn. It's just not okay. Once you know better, it's up to you as an adult to learn and do better, period. Absolutely. Right? Yes. What are you, as we turn this corner from 2020 to 2021, what is your dream for your future? What what are you dreaming of? Because what 2020 potentially did was really stifle or reshape sometimes or or it made us even hungrier for those dreams that were hidden in our hearts. Um, so what are you what what is like your big dream? Just to be better. Um, my 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 big dream and my just is to. Be a, be a better human, like show up for myself more, 
tell my story mm. more because this felt good to share because like I said, I'm always, I'm, I feel like I'm used to being on the other end and I'm asking the questions. So I want to, like I said, share stories and include mine. I want to share more of my story um, for other people and for myself and show if up, you- show up in this, in the space, in my full self, full authentic self, unapologetic. Well- and and we need it. We need your full self. And I think that listeners listening to this guess would say, yes, we need more of Ashley Dunn's voice in the world. It's a voice the world needs to hear. It's a beauty that the world needs to lay eyes on in a way that can teach us and lead us. And um, I just I just want to bless the work of your hands, you know, as you move forward into your dreams and into your new podcast and into the things that you're creating and the joy you're bringing people. Um, just just bless you on this journey and may you have everything that you need to be filled and full and peaceful um, as you put one foot in front of the other. Am I appreciate you and Brett. Thank you both for even just thank you for listening to the call of God on your life. And working mm-hmm. together as a team, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's a representation for married couples to show how you can come together and work together and, you know, get people's stories out to heal other people, you know, and mm-hmm. I think that's so important what you're doing with your podcast. So thank you, Em, for reaching out. You know, I didn't know what to expect. Sorry for crying today. <laughs> I love it. We welcome all the tears around here. Thank we are you. so used to it. And, um, Man, what a what a joy to have you on! And if if people want to find you, where can they find you? Um, everywhere at I am Ashley Dunn. Everywhere, and we'll make sure to yeah, tag. We'll put that in the show notes for sure. And you need to go check her. I've been scrolling her Instagram while we've been talking the whole time, and I, you might need to style me, Ashley. You might need to style me. <laughs> okay. Do you style your husband? Of course. He has okay. like he has it down now. But I'm like, boy, let me get you together. <laughs> all you right, all right. Hey girl, you are a gift. Yes, Thank you're you. a gift. And next time you're in Texas, holler at us if we're ever out in LA when the world opens back up again, we'll be sure to connect. We will. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate you all. Hey, thanks for joining the Jesus Said Love podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to awaken hope and empower change with us. We want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review Yes, because your voice matters. It's how we get this message into the world. And lastly, be sure to follow Jesus Said Love on Instagram and Facebook for up-to-date info and visit the website at JesusSaidLove.com for how you can join the JSL fam. Until next time. Share the love.